The questions will be up on the screen uh, this morning. Take note of those for our, for our time of response. If I haven't said it already, good morning uh, to you all. I hope that you have had a, a, a good week. Uh, we're back in Ezra this week. It's been a couple weeks, but we're back in Ezra. And this morning, Lord willing, we're going to finish Ezra chapter 8. And that leaves us with only three more weeks in Ezra. And then in, uh, we will be starting uh, Nehemiah, but all that will be uh, next year. So Ezra chapter 8 this morning. Ezra 1 through 6, just as a reminder, uh, is about the first group of exiles that are brought back into uh, the land. And their main task, as we saw, was to rebuild the temple. The whole city is in shambles, and the temple needs to be rebuilt. And that's what the first group accomplishes. In chapter 7, around 50, 60 years later, Ezra, the man, comes on the scene. He's a priest. He's a scribe. He's a, a Persian emissary, a counselor to the, to, the, to the greatest king at that time, King Artaxerxes. And, and God raised him up and put him in that position to be a blessing to his people and for his kingdom. And so he was called to lead another group of exiles back into the land. The king had given Ezra then and all the other Israelites everything that they had needed. Anything that they asked for, the king would give to them. I mean, just lavished an amazing amounts of, of goods and blessings and, and, and wealth upon, uh, upon them. And in those returning groups were 12 families. There were priests, there were people, and there was a kingly line. Do you remember the name of the kingly line? The man in line from David? The man Hattush, the son of David. He was a reminder of what? That God is keeping his redemptive promises to bring about the salvation of his people. You see, this is the undercurrent of the book of Ezra. This is the background of the, the whole entirety of the Old Testament. And for that matter, the Bible, because God is working out his redemptive plan of salvation of his people by fulfilling all of his promises. For promises that we've seen in Genesis 3, to the promises made to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, the promises in the Psalms, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and all the promises of the, the minor prophets, and in the New Testament. When you read the Bible, always keep that in mind, the undercurrent of God's redemptive story. And when you see his promises, look to see how they have been fulfilled or how they are being fulfilled. Now, after taking a census, Ezra saw that there was about 4,000 people with all the, the 12 families, but they were missing. They were missing a group of people, the one really big problem. They couldn't leave without this group, and that is the Levites. The Levites were the servants to the priests to offer sacrifices, to clean up, maintain the temple, and, and so much more. So they petitioned the Levites to come, telling them and convincing them by the word of God, the obligation that they have to do the work of God. Now this morning, as we finish chapter 8, we're going to see this next group leave. 
and they make their final preparations for the journey. They leave and they arrive in Jerusalem and they signify their return back to Jerusalem by worshiping together in the temple. That's the rest of chapter 8. But here's what I want you to see this morning and what I want you to keep your eye out as we read the text this morning. I want you to look out for what Ezra prioritizes those moments before they leave. What he calls them to do. What he leads them to do. And then what he instructs and leads the priests to do. Then notice what they do when they get to Jerusalem. And I already told you what they do. And lastly, I want you to have the ears to hear what God is doing and what God has done. So Ezra chapter 8, starting in verse 21 this morning, we're going to start there and finish up chapter 8. And then I proclaimed a fast there, I mean Ezra, at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all of our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. And then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and the ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, an offering of the house of our God, that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and, sil and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth of 1,000 dariacs and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord and the vessels are holy and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord and the God of your fathers, guard them, keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. And then we departed from the river Ahava, on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from the ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and we remained there three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, the son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Jehozabad, and the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. 
At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel. Ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and of a sin offering, twelve male goats. This was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and of the house of God. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy inspired and inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Life is certainly filled with unknown and uncertainty. The more life you live and the older you get, that reality becomes more apparent. That you can't control everything around you. In fact, you begin to really realize that there really isn't much at all that you control. As we learn these realities and these truths, as you grow up and grow older, you can either go two ways to this reality. One is to deny it and take what may come and bear it out in stress and anxiety and fear and flat-out denial. And then there's this other way, a Christian way, a biblical worldview kind of way. That's where we look at the world, knowing that we ourselves who were fallen, we who ourselves who are susceptible to sin and weakness, that we are finite, and that yet God is infinite. And that those realities that we are not in control of, all those things that happen all around us, the biblical worldview says over and over that God is sovereign and that God is in control of every bit of it. That no matter what, His truth will always prevail and that He is always good and that He is always loving and that he loves us in Christ alone. Essentially, we walk by faith in those truths and not by sight. It doesn't change the reality of the danger and the loss and the pain and the temptations and the suffering and the persecution, but it absolutely changes our perspective. It changes our, our posture toward those things that, that seek to do us harm. That are maybe even being used to bring about doubt and despair and fear. It changes the way we respond. Our passage this morning entails about a four-month span of when they're about to leave and when they arrive in Jerusalem, a four-month journey. The reality for Ezra, and you can see it right there in the beginning of the passage, that is before him, he is about to lead a group of 4,000 people into the darkness, onto the road. And you can feel the weight 
of the burden as a leader to lead this group out onto a, could possibly be a very violent journey. He doesn't know what to expect, except for experience says that being on the road is no good. He knows he is not in control, that he is unable to thwart any attack or any ambushes that, that may come, them, come their way or hit them along the road. But how does Ezra handle How does Ezra deal? How does Ezra lead in that uncertainty and in the potential fear? He applies truth. In fact, he reapplies truth. He reapplies truth that we have heard from Ezra over and over again since chapter 7. And he reapplies this truth in order that the people may act in faith. Ezra 7, 6, The king granted him all that he has, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Verse 28 of chapter 7, And he who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before the the king's mighty officers, I took courage, for the hand of my Lord, my God, was on me. Chapter 8, verse 18. And by the good hand of our God is on us. Then in our passage this morning, in verse 22, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all those who forsake them. So what is the truth that Ezra has been leaning on? What is the truth that Ezra knows from the Word of God and that he has leaned over and over on? And it's the same thing, the same truth, that Ezra is leaning on in chapter 8. That God is sovereign, that He is mighty, that he is powerful and that he loves them and that he is working out their good for his glory. It's the same for us, right? Are we not to lean on those same truths in order to act in faith in the face of the unknown and the uncertainty and the darkness? Is God's character in nature not the same toward any one of us in Christ? Are we not also his people, his children, adopted and grafted into his family because of the sacrifice of his son? The answers to those questions are all the same. Absolutely. But what I want to show you this morning is how in that truth, in that biblical worldview, is how Ezra leads the people to act in faith. You see, often we think faith is just something that we never can grasp or or see. 
But faith is in the promises and the truth of who God is as He has been revealed in the Word of God. The solid foundation that we live and base our whole lives upon isn't something that's fake, but it's right there. And that's what Ezra is leaning on in leading his, the people to act in. And how he acts and how he leads them in those acts of faith is in prayer and fasting. He instructs the, the priests to, to be holy in faith and to guard in faith. And then he brings the people to worship and make sacrifices to the Lord in faith. So right before the group leaves out, they're still camping. They're still camping by the river. And right there in the beginning, we see how Ezra declares a time of corporate humility. And, and I find this, past, this part of the passage just, just so amazing. Before they leave, carrying a lot of money and everything, and their children and their families, Ezra sees a potentially deadly threat ahead of them. Life on the road is not easy. So right there in verse 21, we see clearly that the call is to rely on God, to trust in Him, to trust in His power rather than the power of man and what they can accomplish or we could accomplish. In faith, knowing the Lord, Ezra leads the people to humble themselves, to seek God, that if they want safety and protection for their goods and for their families, that they need the Lord. And that faith leads them to pray and to fast. In fact, in verse 22, Ezra makes that really clear, saying, for I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all those who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Ezra has a dilemma when it comes to safety, but he doesn't waffle. He doesn't turn away from the truth that he had proclaimed publicly to the king, but rather he trusts in the Lord and he turns to the Lord and he turns the whole people to the Lord to seek the Lord in faith that he will be their sword and that he will be their shield on the road. Why was Israel in the first place exiled? Because they relied on everything else and everyone else rather than the Lord. They turned to every other place to find safety and comfort and joy instead of 
the Lord. They trusted in foreign nations and foreign gods and other kings to take care of them and to fight for them. And they completely neglected the Lord and his law and how the Lord has given them so much and that the Lord has showed himself and proved himself over and over his faithfulness. And so he poured out his wrath upon them by destroying Israel and scattering, scattering them into exile. But in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29 and following, Moses makes a prophecy. And he says that, that from exile, Israel would seek the Lord. That Israel would seek the Lord. And that in exile, when they seek the Lord, they will find him. And when they find him, the Lord would be merciful to them and that the Lord would not forget them and he would not leave them and he would not destroy them. Because why? Because he had made a promise to their fathers that he would always uphold. I believe that Ezra knew this Deuteronomy chapter 4 very well. I knew he, I believe he knew this very well, and that in this very moment that this promise was for them to hold on to, this promise that Moses had pro pro prophesied was for them, and they believed that promise. And I believe that that is extremely important because of what Ezra leads them to do to pray, to pray, and to to fast, to seek the Lord's sovereign protection. A call to humility is an act of faith. In this fall, we just read the small book called Prayer by John Owen Chekwa. And in it, he quoted from Gary Miller's book on prayer, calling on the name of the Lord, and he defined prayer. And I believe this is a biblical definition of prayer. It's prayer is as God's people calling on God to come through on his promises. What was Ezra doing? Leading the people to do what? To call upon God to fulfill his promises. That based upon the character of God, and upon his promises to fulfill those promises that he has made. And that when they would turn to him, and that then they would seek him by faith, he would not forsake them and turn to them. And he would be their God, and they would be their people. We're not going to turn to the king. I could. We could. We're not going to trust in our own strength. You remember where that got us? No. We are turning to the Lord. And we are going to humble ourselves in the ways and the means that he intends for us to turn toward him in prayer and in fasting. John Calvin said of prayer that prayer in the Bible is intimately linked with the gospel. 
God's, pro God's promised and provided solution to the problem of human rebellion against him and its consequences. The gospel shape of prayer is evident from the opening pages of the Bible right through the end when the church prays, Come Lord Jesus. This too is for us. When we pray, we remember who we are praying to. We remember the promises of God. We remember the, the gospel and how in Christ God has provided richly for us in Christ. The foundation, the faith by which we come and pray is the gospel. We believe. That's what we're leaning upon. So all this trusting in the Lord to see his good hand and powerful hand and believing that God was leading them and that he would be with them, all that truth was being applied through prayer and fasting. Ordinary means of grace. Nothing out of the ordinary. Nothing spectacular. There's no offerings being made. There's no sacrifices being made. They don't build monuments or altars. No grand promises of quid pro quo and God, if you do this, we'll do this. No. They emptied out themselves, humbling themselves of all of themselves, of their abilities and their own strength and relying upon God and calling upon His strength in his power, by his promises, through prayer and fasting. Yes, they fasted. Prayer is one thing, but fasting? We won't spend much time on fasting, but Jesus certainly does. Do you know Jesus has more to say about fasting than he does the Lord's Supper or baptism? We have a pretty think healthy theology of baptism in the Lord's Supper? What about fasting? What about, what about fasting? In the Old Testament, the, the people of God fasted many times, especially in the light of uncertainty and, and fear. In the New Testament, the church often gathered, just like Ezra does these people, before they leave to pray and fast. In Acts 13, on the eve before the first missionary journey, the sending out of Paul and Barnabas, the church in Antioch, was worshiping and fasting. And they laid their hands upon Paul and Barnabas in prayer and praying for them. Also in our, our book study on prayer this past fall, together it said that, that prayer to the, excuse me, to the Christian is like breathing. We all know that breathing is necessary, but it's not always natural. Prayer is necessary. And, and we, we all know that we need to pray, so it's not a problem of, of the knowledge of knowing that we need to pray or not to pray. It's a problem of the will. It's a problem of the desire, and it's a problem of knowing who our God is. You see, Ezra had a firm understanding on who God was. We saw it over and over. 
And so the act of faith to them naturally, as breathing, was to pray and to fast. Prayer and fasting is dependence upon the Lord. It's seeking the Lord. It doesn't come naturally, yet we must be taught and we must be exercising that faith to pray. And when we pray, we are placing... to fear, with nothing to fear. He hears our prayers. He shows compassion and love toward us in our needs. He cares for us and for our needs, and he gives us good gifts. Thus, the Lord is the same Lord that Ezra leads the people to pray and to seek in faith. We pray to, and we listen and he listens to us. Let's make it like breathing and practice it and always remembering who we are praying to. Faith leads us to pray. Second, what does Ezra do with the priority after leading the people in humility or humbling themselves before the Lord? You see there that he leads the, he sets the priests apart. Twelve leading priests, and he charges them to take charge of, of all the, the money, right? Basically the money, or all the gold and all the, all the silver and some of the, the bronze, that they are to be in charge of all of it, and they are to carry it all back to the temple when they get to Jerusalem. Now that was a lot. Um, that was one of the, the commentaries was given some of the, the weights of everything. That was like three tons of gold. Three tons. Three tons of gold and 19 tons of silver. That's a lot. That's a lot of weight. And that's a lot of responsibility. And it was all weighed out. You saw that. They weighed it out precisely and they recorded it out precisely to make sure nobody was shaving anything off. When shaving any of the pieces off for themselves. Ezra was accountable to the king for all of this to make sure it got to where the king had designated it to go. The king, King Artaxerxes. And he took it seriously. He delegated this responsibility because it's a huge responsibility to the, to the priests. But look at verse 28. Because it's not just the king, it's not the king, excuse me, that Ezra fears. And he tells the priest that it's not the king that they should fear either. And it says, and I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. And the vessels are holy. And the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. 
Ezra appeals to God's holiness to motivate these men to be faithful. To be faithful. As faith in the character and nature of God drew them to pray and to fast and depend depend upon him, Ezra again calls upon the character and nature of God to call them and to commit them to holiness and to serve the Lord faithfully. So do you see the connection between faith and holiness? Faith in a sovereign, holy, heavenly Father compels us into holiness. To be set apart and to live as Christ has commanded us to live, to put away sin and unrighteousness to crucify the flesh, and to live in the freedom in Christ. And just as Ezra called those priests to be separate and holy according to the word of God, says the priests are to be separate, so does Jesus. The greater Ezra call his followers into holiness as well. Being faithful means being holy. Pursuing holiness. It's God's holiness that compels us into faithfulness, and that faithfulness leads us into being holy. Jesus called us to be holy. Matthew 5, 48, be holy or be perfect, for your Father in heaven is perfect or holy. And Christ is our great high priest, and he has given his followers his righteousness, that we, that make us his priests in the world today. 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are called into holiness, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Faith leads us into holiness. Christians, we are called to be holy, to be separate, to image our Savior, to put away the old man and the flesh, crucify the flesh, and live by faith in the light. The marvelous light. We will be as faithful as we think God is holy. How we steward what God has given us shows what we really think of God. Just as Ezra gave the priests who were to be holy the charge of stewardship over such a great amount of wealth until they get to Jerusalem, to to guard it, to carry it, to get it to Jerusalem, every ounce of it. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, has given us to guard a greater treasure. 2 Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul encourages young Timothy, as we are encouraged to follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that you are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, 
Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. We are called as Christians by faith and holiness to guard the good deposit within us. And that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, comes alongside us, and empowers us to do so. Well, what is this good deposit? Is it three tons of gold? No, it's a greater weight than gold. It's a greater treasure than we could ever imagine. And we're still trying to get and we're trying to gain and continue to to learn about the good deposit. What is this treasure? It is the gospel. We have the gospel. It's the truth. The good deposit that has been given to us is the truth of God's gospel. We have been given the truth of the gospel in the Holy Spirit to guard it, but not to hoard it. It's not something that we hide under the bushel, but we let the world see. We we proclaim it and we share it with the world. And if we guard it in the Holy Spirit, the world can't corrupt it. It's the truth. There's only one gospel. And we are to keep that truth. And we're to keep from wavering from that truth and help each other from wavering from that truth. We are to protect it from false doctrine for those who seek to corrupt it. Faith calls us to holy lives and guarding the gospel until we get to Jerusalem. Lastly, faith leads us in worship. Leads us to worship. Verses 31 through 36 sum up the journey in the arrival in Jerusalem. It was about a four-month journey, and there's very little details to that journey except one, that God was with them and how he had delivered them from the hand of the enemy, from ambushes on the road. So through every danger, the good hand of God was upon his people. God had heard their prayers. God had heard their prayers and had shown his faithfulness to his covenant and to his people. And just like we saw in verse 23 that they fasted and implored to God, God listened to their petitions and he answered their prayers as he always does in one way or another. And and for the very fact that that everything turned out well in the end is an indication of God's goodness on his people. That is the victory of faith, the victory that is the Lord's. This is to encourage us. This is to encourage us that the God of the returnees in that same, that same day, he is the same God as yesterday and today and forever, and that he does not change. Brothers and sisters, he hears the cries of his people. And the promises he knows to protect and care for his people. And in those faithful few words, we came to Jerusalem. A very simple phrase, but certainly means an awful lot. Because behind that lies the very heart of faith. That the Lord of all history and redemption, whom in Christ... We have come to know and adore. 
that he too will lead us to Jerusalem. Now, after resting three days, they turn over all the gold. Everything was accounted for. And then those who had been led out of captivity made a burnt offerings to the Lord. We've talked about worship several times within, within Ezra, so we won't spend too much time here, and we'll close in just a moment. But isn't it certainly quite fitting for them that when they get to Jerusalem, they take three days to rest, they get, they get themselves together, and they go straight to the temple to offer sacrifices. And once again, remember that this is the first time that any of those priests had ever made sacrifices or the Levites had cleaned up after the sacrifices. The first time the people have ever participated in making sacrifices. And they made a burnt offering. A burnt offering. It was an expression of, basically, of not holding anything back from God. Not holding anything back. They wanted God to have everything there that was of them. You see, worship is an outcome of faith. Faith is fueled by the character of God to pray fast, depend upon Him, to be holy, to guard the truth within us, but also to enjoy and to delight in the worship of Him and to not hold anything back from Him. To give Him all the glory and to worship and adore Him that the posture of hearts is not only to look toward him, but then to give him all the glory. That everything is on the table. In your hearts this morning, do you adore the Lord? Is everything on the table? All our possessions, our families, our talents, our hearts, our minds, body, and souls. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You know what's interesting to me about worship is not what I give to God as a sacrifice to Him. It's not what I leave on the table or everything that I can give to God, however it may be meaningful to me or whatever it may be as I've given the Lord my life or as y'all have given your Lord, the Lord your life. But what's amazing to me about worship and finding delight and joy in Christ is what we gain. We get joy. <laughs> and we get peace. We get grace and we get mercy. We get contentment and satisfaction. We get fellowship with the creator of the universe who is our heavenly father. We get strength. Doesn't it give us strength that even in the midst of the uncertainty on the road that he still strengthens us? Worship is living for the glory of God. And it's not about what we lose, but it's about who we are gaining. And that is the Lord, is that we get him. And as we finish chapter 8, this one chapter out of hundreds of chapters in, in the Bible, a chapter written thousands of years ago, and how we are here thousands of years later, 
how amazing this chapter is still to be a great encouragement to us. When we consider our lives and, and what they really matter in the world, consider your life and what it really matters to the world as a whole. In the eyes of the world, my life matters hardly anything, like nothing. I don't feel very special anymore because I don't get all those emails and text messages about who to vote for. Well, I get now I still get some. We mean nothing. We have not much status. We have not much fame or talent or abilities or influence, do we? And yet, what does Ezra 8 say to us that the Lord, the maker, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, the sovereign king, our God, our heavenly father is doing what? That he is advancing his kingdom in this world through a group of nobodies like me. Sorry, not to make you equated with me. And there's not very many of us either. This isn't meant to be a Christmas sermon, of course, but I think there is a Christmas idea here. Because the idea of God's glory to bring us salvation, bring salvation to his people, has come through the most unlikely of people, in the most unlikely of places, and at the most unlikely of times. The coming of the kingdom of God through the incarnation of his son is what Christmas is all about. And Christmas should remind each and every one of us one thing, that God has fulfilled his promise. And what does that mean? That God is truthful. That God is truthful. And he has kept his promises. And if we forsake God's truthfulness, then the gig is up. Then we are susceptible to everything that comes our way. To every fear, to every anxiety, to every temptation and suffering that it would crush us. To every winds of uh, doctrine that come our way. God is truthful. And that is why we pray. God is truthful. And that is why we pursue holiness. And we guard the truth within us. God is truthful, and that is why we worship Him in spirit and in truth. Church, brothers and sisters, the beloved, be encouraged to live in faith because the hand of our God is for good on all those who seek Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this morning, and we are thankful for Your Word. And may you encourage us to live by faith, faith that is firmly planted in the, the knowledge and the truth of the gospel and the character and nature of our Heavenly Father, who is truthful. In this Christmas season, let us be reminded, God, that you are truthful and that you have kept your promises. And so, Lord, we we pray even this morning that you would continue to keep your promises. All that we pray is built upon that foundation of who you are. And so, Lord, we look to you in faith. 
We pray that you would guide us in holiness and helping us to protect and guard the truth within us. Lead us, continue to lead us that we would enjoy and delight in sacrifice and worship unto you. We pray this to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.